And so, God, we pray for our ears to be opened, our hearts to be softened, to know that you are here indwelling your people and surrounding our midst. We are not trying to gain your attention, but we're here to surrender our attention to you. So I pray for um, your presence to be so sharp and heavy here that we are not listening to a monologue, but that God, as we go through your word, it's a dialogue between ourselves and your spirit and what you're shaping and calling us to be. So we offer ourselves to you in your son's name we pray. Amen. Good evening. Thank you. Jeremiah chapter 2 is where we'll put in tonight. Jeremiah chapter 2. And as most of you know, um, we are going at about a pace of five chapters a week. And so we are in our five chapters tonight, Jeremiah 2 through 6. Last week, we looked at courage for the call in Jeremiah 1, that Jeremiah was called to something big, and he needed courage for that call because he, like you and I, was a very uh, inconfident person in that call. So if you missed that, you can grab a CD. We've got that, and you can get courage for the call. Now we're going to look at Jeremiah as he steps out, and he begins to declare his first message to this rebellious people of Jerusalem. So there's a path. There's a path that God has for us. And he's leading us on this path. And he wants us to follow him on this path. And where this path goes is to a life lived to its fullest in God. As we saw last week, God was calling Jeremiah to call people to live fully. Don't live only, live fully. Stop with the excuses, stop sitting in self-preservation mode, sipping tea in your rocking chair by the fire, right? Like Frodo and Bilbo. He's calling us that in God and in the present, there is a life that can be experienced to the fullest. And that God has a path to get us there. That we're to follow him on that path. And we're going to follow Israel on this path when they did follow God on it, when they forsook this path and the chaos that comes as a result of that. So we are concerned tonight with the path where God leads us to live fully, not in a limited settling for second best type of life. So chapter 2, we see the path. Chapter 2 verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah, saying, Go and proclaim this in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. So God's remembering that Israel was this people he chose as a man chooses a bride. And he loved her and cherished her and took care of her as a man takes care of a bride. And he led her as a man leads a bride. And, he was, and they were following him. They were on this path where God was taking them from what? From slavery in Egypt, a limited only life, to the promised land where they can figure out the fruitfulness of living under God's will. And he was leading them to be more and to experience the fullness of what it is to live in God. 
and they followed him along this path. So they continue in verse 3. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest, and all who ate of it, the harvest, Israel, all who ate of Israel incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. So not only did God lead them to the promised land, but he attacked those that attacked his people. He had their back. He stood up for them. And so that's the path that Israel leads God on. And this path, God desires for us to live a whole, full life in him. And Jeremiah is all about this. We saw last week, didn't we? Chapter 12, verse 5, where God comes to Jeremiah and says, What's up, Jeremiah? You're weary running with men? If you're weary running with men, how are you ever going to run with horses? So man up, take my call, take courage. I am calling you to run, outrun men and run with horses. And then we all know Jeremiah 29, verse 11. I know the plans that I have for you. I have plans for a welfare, not plans of evil, plans for a future and a hope. Jeremiah is all about calling a people who have settled, who have stopped following God along this path to fullness, And he's calling them out of that and saying, live in God and live in the now once again. Stop living in the past. Stop fearing for the future. So, (laughs) in The Hobbit, I promise I won't talk about Hobbits and Lord of the Rings every week. But in The Hobbit, um, when I was thinking about this theme of following God in the past, it stuck out in my mind when I reread The Hobbit recently this, this line that Gandalf, the old wizard, tells this crew of dwarves and a hobbit on their way to seek a treasure in a, in a land they've been exiled from. And they're about to embark into the dangerous Mirkwood. And as they're about to enter into the wood, Gandalf shouts out. He's leaving them. He has other things to do. And he says one last word to them. He says, be good, take care of yourselves, and... Don't leave the path. And in the book, that's in all capital letters, so you don't miss the importance of it. Don't leave the path. That was his last words, and Gandalf was gone for a long time through the story. And the dwarves and Hobbit have to go into the woods, and they're following the winding path through the woods. And most of us know how it goes, or you'll just wait and see the movie this December. They are in the woods, and... Well, they follow the path for the most part, and then they get super hungry, and they leave the path in search of food. And it was once they left the path, once they left the path, that's where we have the scene that gives me shivers every time I think about it. Flies and spiders is what the next chapter is called. And the, the dwarves and the hobbit become flies and they get entangled in the webs of these massive spiders. And they have trouble and woe from there on, and then they finally get to their destination. But all because they left the path. Now, Israel, we see here, began with following God along this path. But then somewhere along the way, they strayed from the path, And they settled for less than what God was leading them to. Take a look at this in verse 13 of chapter 2. 
For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Two evils here. One, they forsook God, the fountain of living water. Living water meaning it's always moving, it's always flowing. The spring, it has an abundance of water that doesn't stop. And then second, that they went and made cisterns for themselves, cisterns that didn't even hold water. They were broken. Now, here's the setting in this, in this time. To have a spring of living water was absolutely desired. You could have water bubbling out, and all you have to do is go draw the water, make a well, whatever, and you've got water all the time. If you don't have a spring, then you have to go into the hills where there's limestone. You have to carve deep into the hill and make a little basin within the earth that became a cistern. And then you would plaster the cistern so that the water didn't seep through the limestone and disappear. So you would do all the hard work of digging a cistern, plastering it, and then you'd have to make little tracks to channel the water into the cistern. And so then you were limited to whenever it rained, uh, the water that was there in that cistern. And you had a limited supply, and that was all you had. Now, what happened, though, was in time, these cisterns didn't last forever. In time, the cisterns began to develop cracks just through aging and, and weathering. And then when the cracks developed, not only were you limited to the water in your cistern, but that water depleted gradually as it seeped through the cracks. So what God is saying about Israel here is they had a source of living water, a fountain where they could always get unlimited water. They turned away from that. They left the path to go and make for themselves cisterns. They had water there. But you see what's happening is it's less than what they could have had. See, there's nothing wrong, per se, with a cistern. A cistern can give you water. A cistern can support you in life. But the big error of Israel is that they settled for cisterns when God was offering them springs so Israel is along the path following God. And God's trying to mature them, make them fruitful, and be everything he wants them to be in the world, to be a blessing to the world. But along that way, they saw some limestone and said, hey, we can make water there. Good enough. Let's stop here. We're tired of walking. And that's the idea, is that Israel settled for cisterns, settled for less than what God had for them. Now, as a result of this, not following God along the path, things got real bad. And I want you to jump up to chapter 4. Israel got tangled in their own web. They were doing their own chapter of flies and spiders. So as they forsook the path to choose cisterns over the spring, things begin to happen. They fall into idolatry. All these things that happen when we choose to settle and get comfortable and preserve ourselves and sit in a rocking chair by a nice cozy fire. And the result of forsaking this path is catastrophic. You see in 4 verse 23, 
You know, let's start in 19. I'll give you the full effect. 4 verse 19. Now, God's been prophesying that Jerusalem's going to fall. So Jeremiah now screams this out in 419. My anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain. Oh, the walls of my heart. My heart is beating wildly. I cannot keep silent, for I hear the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Crash follows hard on crash. The whole land is laid waste. Suddenly, my tents are laid waste, my curtains in a moment. How long must I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? The standard is the banner the armies flew under. So he's seeing this army surrounding Jerusalem, and he's in anguish. Like, how long do we have to hear this battle trumpet and see this army up there? How long must we be threatened and limited by the presence of enemies? And then God replies in verse 22, For my people are foolish. They know not me. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil. But how to do good, they know not. And now Jeremiah says this. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void. And to the heavens, and they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking. And all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man And all the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert, and all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. This is what Jeremiah sees as a result of Israel's settling for cisterns, forsaking the path, as he looks out and you hear echoes of Genesis 1. Formless and void, birds, man, light. But... It's opposite from Genesis 1 because now the land is formless and void. Remember in Genesis 1, it starts formless and void, and then God says, let there be light. And he begins to create things, and the formless and void disappears, and there's birds, and there's man, and there's light, and there's life. (laughs) And it's a fruitful Eden and a garden. But Jeremiah is seeing all of this be reversed. It's a decreation. It's now formless and void. The darkness is conquering light. The fruitful land is now a desert. There's no man, there's no bird, there's no beast. Where is everything? And what he's basically crying and weeping and seeing the nation, the state of the nation, is that their world had fallen apart. Creation itself was being unglued, unhinged. And that's the tragic affair of the people who choose to live only lives, settling for cisterns rather than following God along the path of fullness. And maybe we have gone through those moments where our world becomes unhinged, where it caves in and falls apart. And you are going, everything I once knew, all these parameters are gone, and I have nothing now. I have no clue what's going on in the world and in my life. What I thought was up turned up to be down, and what I thought was down turned up to be up. And I don't even know which way is north. And your world falls apart, and you look about, and it has n- you see nothing good in it. And I think either in small ways or catastrophic ways, we have all experienced this moment. 
Jeremiah is pleading with the people. <laughs> you guys know what this is? This is Jenga. It's a block game where you pull out one of the blocks without making it fall, and you put it on top, and um, every now and then someone pulls a bad one, and the whole thing topples, and you lose. And it gets harder because, you know, you start to pull out from the base, and it's getting taller, and it's more wobbly. Well, God had this plan, obviously, for Israel. Like, in my path, I'm making you a strong tower. Remember what he told Jeremiah last week? He said, I'm making you like a castle, and no one's going to be able to come against you. Well, here we have a people who have forsaken the path that Yahweh has for them. And Jeremiah is seeing a world that's in shambles, and they're settling for less than God's best. And, you know, before they know it, things are being taken from them, and a piece here and a piece there, and they think they're doing good. Like, yeah, we're building ourselves up. This is awesome. But they don't realize that they are losing their very foundation, and things are going bad. Basically, this is it. What we read in chapter 4 just now about their world coming undone. This is what Jeremiah is writing to. Their world is in pieces. What they once understood to be a tower, and it made sense, and it had a purpose, and it was there as a blessing to the world. Now they look at it and say, what on earth are we? What, what, do I, what do I make of little pieces? You see, the Babylonians in the time of Jeremiah's writing are coming. And at many parts of the book, they're actually around Jerusalem. And can you imagine what it's like to be under siege? We have no idea. We are so blessed in America. You would have death all around you. Death from warfare, from people trying to resist the Babylonians. Uh, you have death because people are being deported and dying along the way to Babylon and you never see your loved ones again. You have death from famine. What happens when a bunch of people have to cram into a city that is now overpopulated because of the threat of war and people are living too close to one another and there's a lack of food. People are starving and dying and where do you put dead bodies? Where do you put them? You can't go out the city. And all of this is happening. And where does the refuse go? What, how does the sewage system work when it's overpopulated and you can't get out of the walls? Disease is rampant and people are dying. It's a disgusting scene of death. And on top of that, you have potential anarchy. The government is completely weak because when the Babylonians come, you don't let the little king rule the people and defend the city. You take the king out of there. You take all of the nobles and all the leaders and the rulers and you take them to Babylon and make them serve you up there. So you have a people now left without experienced rulers. How does that look? What do the streets look like at night when people are starving and desperate and there is no good authority? It's near anarchy in the city. Uh, think about the economy. You have a nation around your city. So who are you trading with? You depended upon imports and exports. How do you get that now? Babylon's intercepting all of it. And on top of that, you have to be paying them money because you know if you stop paying them, the axe is coming down instantly. So where's the money? I mean, that's why you read in Second Kings um, when Samaria fell to the Assyrians that they were selling donkey heads for ridiculous amount of prices, and people were paying two days' worth of wages for pigeon dung. 
That's the condition that things go in. And you have to imagine, this is before they invade. This is just when they surround the city. So this is what your world now looks like. And you're beginning to wonder, God, what happened? And then, of course, the Babylonians come in and they dismantle everything block by block and ruin everything. And can you imagine when you're enjoying uh, maybe a rare meal that you got to have? We actually have one loaf of bread for the whole family attend. It's a feast tonight. And as they're breaking bread, suddenly you hear screaming in the courtyard. The Babylonians had broken through the wall. And men are doing things to women that we shouldn't speak of. And they're taking kids captives. And people are screaming. They're slaughtering all the men trying to stand up for their families and for the city. You have serious traumatic violence occurring. Jeremiah is writing to a people that are, well, he's preaching to a people that are about to hear this, experience this. He's writing to a people that have experienced it. They know what it's like to have your world unhinged and dismantled piece by piece. And I think that we can now hear Jeremiah's cry of, I looked out and I said, what is, everything is uncreated. It doesn't even make sense anymore. So that's what happens. Um, trauma research, people research trauma, say that usually four effects happen when you experience traumatic violence. First of all, the mind is affected. Traumatic violence distorts your perception of reality. Because as you go through something shocking, maybe a school shooting or losing your house in Katrina or losing a loved one in 9-11 or what, some sort of traumatic event, all you have are fragmented memories of what had happened. You don't even know how to make sense of all the events. It's just glimpses of this evil happened, this mean person, this bad thing, and, and it's all scattered in your memory. You don't even know how to piece it together. It's just there in shards. And then second, what happens is you lose words. You don't have language to describe the hurt and to describe the experience. There's no longer words that can describe the wound that has been inflicted. Can you imagine the people of Israel hardly able to make sense of why all this happened and what came upon them and, and losing words to even describe? How do you describe that you've never seen, your, you won't see your family ever again, the temple and the city are gone and you're going to a land you've never seen before? How do you find words for these moments? Um, third, that traumatic violence causes us to numb our feelings you get so used to seeing catastrophe and death and these things around you that the only way to survive is to shut your heart down. Death no longer affects me. I have no compassion. Because to wear that upon you, you can't survive when you see that much around you. So you have hardened hearts and numbed feelings. And fourth, traumatic violence undermines your faith in God. Everything you once knew or thought you knew turns out to have apparently been wrong. We thought, because we have the temple, that it will never collapse. It collapsed. God abandoned us. So Jeremiah knows his audience. How do you deal with a people like this, whose world has been unhinged, who sees these blocks are their memories, it's no longer one, oh yeah, we know our history. It's now, I lost him. Why did God abandon us? 
why am I in Babylon? Just, it doesn't make sense. Things don't add up. The world is in pieces. Well, that's where the structure of Nehemiah comes in handy. He knows what he's doing. He knows who he's talking to. And have you, have you been reading Jeremiah? Have any of you read Jeremiah before? Have anyone noticed that this book seems to lack intentionality and structure and purpose? That you're reading one moment, Josiah is the king. The next, Zedekiah is the king. Then we're back to Josiah. Then we're at Zedekiah. And then it's like, what in the world? He's jumping 20 years ahead, 15 years back, 40 years up. And it's like all over the place. And you're thinking, why didn't Jeremiah just order this chronologically? It would really help us follow the storyline. But he doesn't. In fact, reading Jeremiah is like channel surfing. <laughs> you get little glimpses of every sort of genre out there. You sit there and you're like five seconds of a sports game. Nah, not that one. Oh, they're getting killed. And then he, there's a movie and it's like action scene, something blows up. Then it gets quiet and like, oh, it's boring. And then you move on and there's the news. like, Obama said, I don't like that guy. And then you move on and it's like you have all these scenes. And then it's like one of those soap operas and they're about to kiss. You're like, gross. And you're moving through all these different scenes. And there's all different types of things to watch, types of information, types of entertainment, uh, different storylines, different cinematography, different purposes. That's what reading Jeremiah is like. You're just getting into the groove of a biological part of his own life, like last week, his calling. You're like, yeah, his calling. And all of a sudden, you're like, Israel has become an adulteress. And then in the next paragraph, war is coming. And then the next paragraph, you're like children who are rebellious. You're like, I thought she was his wife. Now they're rebellious children. Why is the war in the middle? Then it jumps back to war. And then it jumps back to Nehemiah, uh, Jeremiah's life, a biographical excerpt. And you're like, what in the world? And it does this. And then if that doesn't confuse you, it jumps back 20 years again. And you're like, oh, that's Jeremiah's book. Why is he such a channel surfer? Why is it filled with poetry? One moment, a proverb then a prophecy? Why then a lamentation? Why then a biographical account? Why does it change and so back and forth? Maybe because Jeremiah understands that the later generation reading this has a life that is in shambles. And so he writes like this. Something there, something there, something there. And as he does that, the people are identifying, right? He's writing like their memories are, scattered and shattered. And it doesn't make much sense. And so what does the reader have to do? The reader has to pay extra attention. The reader now has to become a participant in the narrative Jeremiah is telling. Not just a passive, tell it to me. Because you know what? That's what happens after your world falls apart. We play the passive victim. I'm a victim. And we sit back and our life is just passive. It's deadline. It's we don't even know what to make of it anymore. And he's calling them to active participation through the book, saying, this is it. This is like your mind. is. You need to make sense of what I'm writing. And as you do, you're recalling the past. And you're starting to piece it together Jeremiah is helping heal a people whose world has come unhinged through active participation. And if you feel that your life is still a bunch of blocks scattered around, 
make Jeremiah your best friend. And let his random channel surfing ways lead you in this mending. So, that's where Israel's at. Um, to clarify any confusion I might have created, Jeremiah is writing to two audiences. You got to have two audiences in mind as we read Jeremiah. First is the hearing audience, right? He's preaching this. He's preaching these words to a people who are listening to it. So there's a present generation that's hearing his words and they're yet to see the Babylonians come or they're yet to fall to the Babylonians. He's also having in mind the later generation, that's his readers. So you have the hearers, but then you have the readers. And they're the ones that are looking back at the destruction of things. And some of them have experienced it. Some of them need to make sense. Did God abandon us? And why did this happen? Where is God? How do we bring our faith back? How does our minds operate again? How do we make our hearts feel and love one another again? Instead of shutting down and being passive and ignoring everybody, how do we find words for these wounds? Jeremiah has all of this in mind. So, let me give you a... Go to 6 verse 16. 6 16. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But the hearers, not the readers, the hearers said, we will not walk in it. So they've left the path that was leading them to fullness, settled for cisterns, have a world that's shattered and scattered and dismantled. And Jeremiah is saying, Go back to the crossroads where you made the wrong turn. Ask for the ancient path. The path you once followed Yahweh on and return to that ancient path. Now, this is coming as a climax, this verse. So this is what's happened. Chapters 2 and 3. If you did your reading, you kind of will sense this drift, right? Um, Chapters 2 and 3, what's God doing? He's inviting Israel, inviting them. Hey, Come back to my paths. You've forsaken them. Please come back. And in chapter 3, you see the word return mentioned a few times. Um, Chapter 3, verse... There we go. Chapter 3, verse 12. Return, faithless Israel. 3, verse 22. Return, O faithless sons. Even in 4, 1, if you return... Oh, Israel. So chapter two is like, you got off course big time. Chapter three is, I'm inviting you back on course. Please return, Israel. Please return. Please return. And it comes out a big surprise because the chapter three opens in verse one with this whole, if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? And he's basically quoting from the law of Moses. Of course not. That would pollute the people on the land. She's done for. And God is comparing Israel to that woman. But In the midst of them not being allowed to come back to him, he offers yet an invitation to come back. So chapters 2 and 3 are this like, oh, things have gotten really bad. Surprise! I want you back. 
And then chapters 4 through 6, we see Israel's response to this invitation. They want none of it. You see in chapter 5, verse 1. Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search her squares and see if you can find a man, just one who does justice and seeks truth, that I may pardon her. Though they say, as the Lord lives, yet they swear falsely. O Lord, do not your eyes look for truth. You have struck them down, but they left no anguish. They felt no anguish. You have consumed them, but they refuse to take correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to repent. That's their response to this invitation. Return, come back. Silence. And God says, go and look through Jerusalem. Is there anyone who wants to return? And Jeremiah discovers they all refuse to repent. That's their answer. God, inviting them back, come and live fully in me. And Israel answering, we like settling for cisterns. We want to live minimally. And then their world falls apart. And then God asks in 6.16, return to the ancient paths. We know what the hearers answered. We like living minimally. But here's our question. What do the readers of Jeremiah do? Return to the ancient paths, the paths that you forsook when you decided enough with being all that God wants me to be, I am settling. I am complacent. When we hear Jeremiah calling us back to the ancient path of following God into the fullness of all he wants us to be, how are we answering? That's the question that is not answered. Because we are still a part of that reading generation. Now, I sense that as God asks that, who wants to return to the ancient path, and that invitation is there, we all are sitting here going, by golly, I didn't even realize that I have forsaken the path. I want the ancient paths. But here's the problem. Between the ancient path and where we are right now lies a whole road of rubble. And in fact, it's the ancient path. It's a path that you once walked down long enough ago that the path is overgrown with weeds and shrubbery once again. And you don't even, you don't even see footsteps on anymore. And actually what's happening now is we're like, yes, the ancient paths! Where are they? And when you can even, okay, I can see, it's over there. You're, you're like, how, how in the world do I even begin to get back there? The road's blocked. There's too many hurtful memories. There's too many shattered, my heart is numbed by this. Or just my world when it came unhinged. I don't, even, I don't even remember what happened between there and here. All I know is I'm here and I want to get back, but I don't know the way When Israel forsook the path, and this is true with us, when Israel forsook the path, what happened is that they forgot the path. You can see this in chapter 2, the whole, the whole uh, order of events. 
You see in chapter 2, verse 13, that they forsook God. It said they forsook him. In 2, verse 17, have you not brought this upon yourselves by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? So in the beginning of chapter 2, they're walking in the path. Chapter 2, verse 17, they have forsaken the path. And look what happens as a result in 2, verse 32. Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Of course not. Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. They followed the path, then they forsook the path, then they forgot God's path entirely. And I fear that that's where most of us who desire the ancient paths sit. How do I get back? God wants to mend for us our way back. The road lies shattered and there's blocks all over it. And we're like, how do I get over and around and through all this? God wants to mend that. Because, see, as I sit here and think about what I used to be or think about what I need to be, and, and I remember the shame of what brought me to where I am or the tragedy that caused me to get off path and all these memories flood in. It can paralyze my mind. And I'm like, I don't even know how I got here. So I don't even know how to fix this. I don't even know how to explain what happened then. And our minds are paralyzed. Well, what happens then? Our lives are paralyzed. And God cares deeply about your mind he wants to mend it and restore it so that you can get back to the path and live fully and wholly in him once again. He doesn't want you to be imprisoned in a memory of shattered disgust and failure and shame. And he's calling us to the ancient path and saying, I will mend it for you along the way. And we're still, but we're like, I don't, I, I don't even, it's too overwhelming as we look at all, all the blocks. And we don't even... We have to meander through that? We have to climb over it? What do we do? Mending our way back to the ancient path and mending our mind, it is not as simple as recall, like a, like a photographic memory, like, oh, that's why I'm so messed up. That's what happened. That's what so-and-so meant. All we know is, ouch and scattered memories. Mending the, our minds and mending these memories takes not photographic recall, it takes road work. It's been said that our minds are like a long stretch of road full of potholes. And to get back is a progress, and it's a progress of mending along the way. God is the mender. So here's how Jeremiah helps the people mend their way back to the ancient paths. First, you'll notice that throughout the book, there's a lot of poetry that's used. And in some ways, it's very vague. It's what Emily Dickinson calls telling it slant. Jeremiah doesn't come to this hurting people with their world shattered and memories in dis disarray. He doesn't come to them and say, well, you know what it is. You abandoned God, and so he did this to you. You need to get your life back together. 
You need to stop being with that person and watching that thing and listening and being that and thinking that and doing. You need to get it all together. That is going to cut far too deep into wounds that have not even yet healed. And the people put their hand up to that and say, you don't even care about me. People don't listen to that. There's a time to not be so direct. There's a time to get around the hurt and bring people slowly to what they need to hear. Jesus did this often. It's called a parable. Jeremiah uses some parables. He uses poetry. He uses figures of speech. It's not just, you people, blah, 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 straightforward, like, oh. It's let them grow into their own realization of what happened. Tell it slant. Here, in, so that we get the context, this is what Emily Dickinson said. This is her poem, Tell All the Truth. She says, tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies. Too bright for our infirm delight, the truth's superb surprise. As lightning to the children eased with explanation kind, the truth must dazzle gradually or every man be blind. I know poems are hard to take in one sitting, but she's there saying, tell the truth and tell it fully, but understand that sometimes a circuitous route is the best. That sometimes, like children who are scared to death, explanation about it, and, and then they're dazzled by it. And so, look, the truth must dazzle gradually or every man be blind. Sometimes the truth is so confronting and it's so affronting and it's so blinding that the best way is to bring it by turning the dimmer up, not flipping the switch on. And Jeremiah tells the truth slant. He tells all of it, but he gets them there by circuit, not by direct. So for some of us, it's okay. It's okay. You don't have to take all of the blocks at once. God is with you taking one at a time as you can handle it. Because he knows that maybe if you saw the whole picture, you crumble in sorrow and give up. God is with us one step at a time, mending it along the way. Jeremiah tells it slant. Second, he uses another literary technique. It's called parataxis. Parataxis. And what that is, is if you read this week, uh, chapters 4 through 6, particularly what you see in chapters 4 through 6, you might have noticed this, is this constant flashback. He's talking about telling them to himself and things they did. And then all of a sudden it's a war scene, and a very vivid war scene about horses speeding mightily to the city and people dying and trumpets being blown. And then it goes back to God talking with Israel and Jeremiah. And then it goes back to a war scene. And then you forsook me, a war scene, return to me, a war scene. Did anybody notice that as they read? If you didn't, you can go read it tonight. You'll see that 4 through 6 is a scattered episode of flashback between God pleading and a war scene. That's called parataxis. When you throw two scenes together in rapid succession, flashing back and forth. And the purpose of that is to make the reader sit on edge to kind of lean forward a little extra. And he has to now actively read it and make sense because it's no longer a ramble. If you guys ever read long prose and you're like halfway in there, you're like, what did I just read the last minute and a half? <laughs> All the time, right? 
in this form of literature, it's a brief scene, and then it changes, and it's a brief scene, and it changes. And so in order to make sense of it, you have to pay attention to each little segment. And like, okay, oh, a new one, war. Okay, oh, yeah, that's, oh, yeah, that's what happened. Oh, war again. Uh, and, and you have to constantly be engaged to follow the structure. Jeremiah does it on purpose because he's calling a passive victim, wounded people out and come along. Be active participators in what I'm saying so that you can become the interpreters, so you can know why this happened and make Live in it. Heal yourselves. Let God do the work as you're reading through this. So that's how Jeremiah is helping. Just real quick, that's how he writes this in a way to, hey... And so what I think we'll find is that as our memory is this constant flashback between what we want and what we are and what we should be and what had happened and we, we know but we don't know, we know what we need to do but we don't know how to do it, back and forth, know this. I don't have easy answers, but know this. God wants to mend your mind. He wants to mend your route back to the ancient path And he does it by transforming these blocks that look like hindrances. And what we actually find out as we walk with God, these blocks become bricks. (laughs) And one after another, as we take a new step in him, he lays down a new brick, a, a haunting memory. It becomes the next step and it becomes a new brick. And what we realize is God is building for us a yellow brick road. That we don't, know, we don't have to have answers for this chaos. We don't have to be the ones to make sense of all of it and then say, now I'm ready to return to the ancient path. God is saying, trust me. Remember what Jeremiah as, prophet, as a prophet is calling the people to do. Live full lives by living in God and in the now. You can't be looking way ahead and going, how am I going to do this? You'll never move. You can't be looking at the past and going, I'm so ashamed and I can't believe I am where I am. I'm just going to sit here. I'm con- I'll just sit in my little miserable existence and I'll make do. I have made do for some time. Live in God and take the step and live in the now. And you're going to find that the rubble is being used to make a yellow brick road back to the ancient path where we will then be as we once were before our world fell apart and we can follow God and we can live fully once again freed from past and free from our shameful mistakes and know that God has used all of that to make me become an even more full person I don't have to live only anymore if only I didn't do that if only I could get this sorted out he wants to mend our minds and mend our path back one brick at a time. The question is, church, will we let him? Or are we going to be content with our broken cisterns? You're getting water, but it's limited and it's temporary. God is offering us springs of life and he's calling us to run with horses and have a future and a hope. 
will we let him lay the bricks down one step at a time? The creator can recreate. Let us trust him. Amen. Amen. Father, we pray that we would be more than the sum of our past mistakes. I pray that for everyone in here, God, that we would begin to see yellow brick roads being paved before us. Give us trust, give us faith. And God, overwhelm us with forgiveness and grace. Teach us to be a body of Christians who live life maximally, who don't settle for broken cisterns, who are not complacent, but are constantly following you into new realms of being used. God, let us never stop growing. Even the oldest amongst us you want leading and outrunning youth. <laughs> so God, I pray that your spirit would charge all of us. Bring us back to your ancient paths, we pray. Amen.